Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. I definitely recommend having someone that you hire who is more on your side working for you as opposed to you going to the factories not knowing Chinese. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn what time of year to go to China to find manufacturers, what's a fixer and how to hire them for your overseas trip, and how to get the attention of busy big box retail buyers. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Moore from Felony Case. Felony Case makes unique iPhone cases and started off hand-making cases and was started in 2012 and based out of Toronto. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, Felix. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. So I got to admit, when I heard the name Felony Case, I didn't think that it would be iPhone cases that you're selling. Tell us about where you came with the name. How did you come up with the name, the brand, Felony Case? So yeah, the the name story is uh, kind of a kind of a funny one. Um, I was actually down in Miami, kind of just after getting the initial idea, and uh, yeah, thought that I wanted to start a uh, an iPhone case company, and we were uh, kind of out at a uh, at a bar, just just grabbing dinner, and it was kind of an empty bar. Uh, there was one. A uh, girl in there sitting up at the bar, um, super unique. She had rainbow-colored hair, like super punk rock, um, big bullet-studded belt, and like six-inch platform shoes. Um, so she was super unique. We we ended up uh, talking to her, and she introduced herself. She said, "Hi, my name's Melanie, but my friends call me Felony." So that uh, that word kind of stuck in my stuck in my mind, and uh, I thought it kind of sounded cool felony case with the uh double entendre um at the time i was making kind of uh very kind of punk rock-esque uh high fashion metal studded phone cases so i really thought the brand name kind of worked with the uh the look the cases had at the time so were you already making cases prior to turning it into like a brand or trying to put a brand around the product that you're selling well, actually, just before I left for that um, Miami trip, uh, it's kind of another funny story. I was just lying in bed about to go to sleep, uh, just reading through Twitter one night. And uh, someone, this girl posted a photo of this crazy um, spiked iPhone case. It had like big two inch uh, metal studs on the back. And she said, oh, my God, what is this? Where can I get one of these? Um so I kind of looked at it and thought, hey, that's kind of cool. I think that would kind of be popular. Um, so I went on Amazon. I think I spent maybe $50. Just I got 10 plain black uh, uh, silicone iPhone cases. And um, I ordered, uh, I think, 100 kind of screw-in punk rock studs, they were called on uh, on Amazon. Uh, so, I, yeah, I ordered those off Amazon and then... Um, I, I tweeted the girl back. I said, "Hey, give me a couple of weeks, and I'll uh, I'll have something for you." So that's kind of how um, it it started out with the with the whole iPhone case idea. I never really set out to start a brand. I got that shipment in from from Amazon. I actually used a, a leather belt hole punch to punch the holes in leather belts i actually use that to punch cases in the back of the silicone case and then i would hand screw in these uh these metal studs and at the time i just was kind of making those for uh for friends uh and then friends of friends saw them they're super uh, unique and eye-catching and it kind of caught on friends and friends would ask and so i would be making them for friends and friends and originally just to get a store set up somewhere to start selling them i actually started on uh, on etsy um took some took some pictures of those ones that i was making and uh yeah it's kind of been a uh, a wild past mm-hmm. five years since then 
Yeah, so clearly you knew to recognize this opportunity. You recognized that there was a buyer out there and you took action immediately, which sounds like you must have some experience here, right? Have you launched businesses or other products in the past? Not really. Prior to that, I was just kind of um, had graduated school a few years, um, a few years before in, in 2009, I graduated uh, from college. And I was just kind of working um, odd jobs, you know, doing doing deliveries. I was, uh, yeah, just just working for kind of maintenance at this uh, kind of cool art building here in Toronto. Um on the side, I did have an idea for a uh, for an app, uh, so I got it. Like not a not a Shopify app, sorry, like a web app. It was actually like a gift, uh, a wish list app. Um, so I kind of got that built, and then I had the website live, and then I thought, wow, I don't know what to do now to <laughs> get people to the to the website. Um, so I so I took business and marketing in school and uh yeah i kind of that was my first foray into uh entrepreneurship was that website is good great learning uh experience but kind of transition now into selling physical goods and um i found that a lot easier um to to do than just having kind of a this this app um I found it's a lot a lot easier to get people to come to a website where they make a purchase and then they actually a few days later receive a product. Yeah. There's definitely something to set, uh, to be said about producing or being in a market with a well-trodden path. Like people know to go online, they know about this product. It's not something that is completely new that you have to explain to them. It's a it's a very frictionless experience for them. When you are creating a web app or even if you're selling a physical product that requires a lot of complex explanations or specific use cases for them to use or buy your product, then it becomes much, much harder. So I think that's what you experienced, which was that you, when you created something from from scratch, you didn't know how to reach your audience. But when you are selling something that is much more identifiable, much more understandable to your customers, it becomes a lot easier. Uh, now, speaking of having something identifiable, you know, merchandise is a huge industry right now. It seems to be blowing up more and more in terms of not just uh, products being out there, but people are starting businesses for the first time by selling merchandise. And cell phone cases is usually one of the first attempts at entrepreneurship for a lot of people. And yours is obviously a lot more intricate, a lot more involved than what you would typically see in a cell phone case merchandise store. But at that time, weren't you, and I think even back then, it must have been seemingly, must have seemed like a saturated market, right? A lot of people were selling iPhone accessories, especially iPhone cases. What made you think that you could you know, corner a specific part of the market, maybe not early, early on, but then when you decide to take it more seriously, what made you decide that or confident that you could kind of slice out your own piece of the pie? Yeah, definitely. I, I saw a need in the, in the kind of iPhone case market. Um, at the time they had the, you know, basic cases that you could pretty much buy a Dollarama or a dollar store or at a, mm -hmm. at a kiosk in the mall um, where they are um, super, super cheap. And then on the opposite end of that, they had super protective iPhone cases that were more expensive, uh, offered great protection, more protection than the dollar store one. But neither of those were, you know, very aesthetically pleasing. So I kind of saw saw a need there where they're, you know, more kind of fashion forward, um, people might be looking for an iPhone case, something unique, you know, when it's uh, a woman with a, a handbag that's worth a, f a few thousand dollars. Um, she doesn't necessarily want that mm. cheap, cheap case from mm -hmm. the kiosk in the mall. And then at the same time, doesn't want that maybe not as aesthetically pleasing case, uh, like a, like a super protective phone case. So I kind of saw a need there, um, where I was going to try and offer very aesthetically pleasing cases that also offer the protection. Mm, makes sense. Now, when you were selling these or making these for, for friends and family, did you have a price figured out or how did you eventually settle on the price point you have today, which looks like it's about $40 for all of your products? 
Yeah. So when I was hand making them, I pretty much just pulled a price out of thin air. Um, I had, I had no idea what to price them. I was getting the materials for fairly cheap, but those cases were very labor intensive. Um, the, the hand screwed in metal studded cases. Um, so those ones I priced at, I think I started them at $50. And then when I kind of started, um, getting some interest from retailers. I think I bumped the price of for those up to $60. And um, I think I could kind of attain that a uh, little bit higher than average um, price point for a phone case because it was a handmade um, phone case. So, but yeah, I just pulled that. I just pulled that originally $50. I just pulled that out of nowhere. Mm. Um, just figured it was kind of more on the premium end and uh i was happy to sell it at that price to friends or family got it so nowadays do you get much do you you test out the prices like what is your strategy today to arrive at a price that makes sense for you and the customer uh yeah i did so after kind of the next um phone case design i i got into after those um those studded ones was a super high-end super luxury um genuine python genuine stingray leathers so for those i was sourcing the um the leathers from thailand getting it shipped over to china to be produced there um but because they had those uh luxury uh, snake skin and stingray skin, I had to price them higher. So the, 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 um, Python ones were 95 and the stingray ones were, uh, were 120. So I kind of went super high end after that because I did currently there wasn't anything, uh, available for phone cases at that price point. Um, and I wanted to kind of target like, uh, yeah, a high end, high end consumer. Um, I did. I did realize after doing that. Um, after I did that, I kind of tested lower, lower price point cases, and kind of realized that there definitely is that uh, happy medium where you could charge a lot and not sell as many. But I kind of realized that it's a lot easier to uh, offer the cases at a more competitive price point and sell more volume. Mm. Now you, you again. We were talking about this. We mentioned this a couple of times already that you handmade a lot of these. Uh, case, handmade all the cases to start with, and there's there's idea of you know, doing things that don't scale right away, rather than trying to focus on scaling or automation right from the beginning. When you're doing this, you weren't worried about being bogged down by producing the products yourself. Like, what was you going through? What was the plan? Uh, was it? What did you ever think about? At first, you ever think about how can I actually scale this? At a later point or like what was your plan early on i think early on when i was sitting in my living room hand making those cases i was just stoked that um that there was a market for them and that people were buy, buying them and i was i was happy to sit there and and make them um, because there was that market for them uh eventually once i started kind of getting more orders um I did definitely had to think about how to uh, how to how to how to scale. Mm. And what was that inflection point for you from going from hand making these and, and into actually turning it into a, a business? Uh, well, I got one one day. I was sitting there making cases, and my phone email email dinged on my phone. I, I had a look at it, and uh, it was actually from from the retail buyers at Apple headquarters in Cupertino, I guess they had seen the, they had seen photos of, uh, the spiked felony cases and they were interested. His, uh, his subject line was, uh, opportunity at Apple stores. So of course, to me, that's, uh, was then. And well, I, at, that, at that point probably wasn't even in my realm of possibility, but that is, uh, of course, a dream. So they had uh, requested some samples. Um, so I made made a few samples for them, sent them down to uh, to Apple headquarters. And this is still handmade at this point. Those those are still handmade. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so he, he got back to me a couple weeks later and, uh, thanking me for sending them. He said everyone in the, uh, everyone in their office was super excited to see them. They ended up doing some tests with them and Apple actually has, um, has some limits with the cases that they, uh, that they will sell in their store. Of course they do they do so many tests and everything to make sure all the functionality of the case won't affect any any functionality of their their iPhones. So they actually don't sell any phone cases that have metal in them because it could interfere with um, I think he said the GPS function of the phone. So when he said that I thought okay well this this um, this studded design I could probably, replicate a similar look to this uh being made out of plastic so i knew uh i i booked a flight to china and uh went over and kind of searched for uh, uh phone case factories that would be able to replicate the same look of the cases i had but make it completely out of uh plastic polycarbonate um so that was the that was the inflection point. That's how I kind of um, that's how it kind of forced me to uh, to scale and kind of go uh, go deeper into the into the business. Mm. And what did you tell Apple this time? Were you like, uh, give me a minute while I figure this out? How did you keep them on hold to uh, to, to to do what you had to do? Yeah, exactly. Um, he he had said, yeah, let us know about any uh, any future any future developments so i said yes i definitely will be letting letting you know um so yeah i think a, a few weeks later i was on a on a flight to china and uh trying to get that new fully poly- polycarbonate design uh worked out now why now why did you feel like you had to go all the way to china to figure this, this out it couldn't be done like online or over the phone to get them to create or some samples for you based on your designs um, well, at that point I was, I was, I was kind of working with some suppliers in China to, to, um, source the, the base silicone cases. So I had, uh, I was, I was trying to work with a few different suppliers to get the perfect kind of base silicone case. And then I had another supplier for the, for the studs as well. So I was kind of familiar with working with some of the factories and I figured that this would be a good time to, to, you know, kind of use this to go over there, be, be feet on the ground, meet face to face with them to, uh, yeah, really, really get the design and, everything for how this this new poly fully polycarbonate case was going to uh, was going to look and function and everything so i just figured that that would be a good time after having already uh yeah work, been working with them the factories there for a few months yeah a lot of the the more successful entrepreneurs that i speak to on this podcast will do something like that where they will be willing to pack their bags and go all the way to the other side of the world to meet the meat manufacturers in person so when if anyone out there is listening is thinking about taking this approach, what kind of tips do you have for them to prepare for a trip like this? Yeah, definitely. So that first uh, first trip I went on was a huge wake up call. Um, a lot of the suppliers that I was working with already uh, they weren't actually they weren't actually factories or manufacturers. They were just uh, agents or trading companies. So I would show up to their office and it was just a tiny little office with a whole bunch of salespeople. And then I found out that they would just kind of outsource their work to the, to the factories. So I, I kind of before that trip went on, uh, went on Alibaba, found a few, uh, phone case factories and set up meetings with them. Some of them did end up being factories. Some of them, uh, were trading companies. So that was a good experience to, kind of figure it, figure that out and see exactly what I was working with. Um, also I learned, um, from being there that first time that there are trade shows that you can go to. Um, there are, they happen a few times, uh, every year. There are some in Hong Kong and some in, uh, Guangzhou. So the second time I went to China, I made sure I went during one of the times of that, uh, trade shows was happening. Um, so it was, great 
compared to the first time where I was running all over China, I felt like I was lost all the time, um, trying to go meet at these different factories. They were out in rural areas. Like sometimes I would have have to drive five hours wow. just to get to just to get to a factory. Whereas um, when you go to a trade show, obviously all the vendors have booths set up and uh, it's it's huge. There's like multiple buildings. So it, kind of every industry uh, we'll have we'll have a trade show or be incorporated into a trade show. Um, so the one that I went to there, I think the the general name for the trade show is called uh, it's like the Hong Kong so- or sourcing sourcing fair, and um, the general name of this one was I think gifts and electronics. So there was a section within this huge trade show that specifically catered to. Uh, phone case manufacturers and uh, like laptop sleeves and skins and all that kind of stuff. So it was definitely uh, a lot better and I could get a lot more done that second time where I could uh, just bang out a whole bunch of meetings uh, back to back to back in under one roof than having to travel throughout China. Um, another thing that I was lucky to have was a, um, a translator Based, she she met me in China. She she spoke English and Chinese, and um, she took me around. And she, yeah, she was kind of my uh, my tour guide, and uh, she would go to all the meetings with me and help translate and everything. Which is, uh, I definitely recommend having someone that you hire who is more on your side working for you as opposed to you going to the factories not knowing Chinese because potentially the uh, the factories when you're in the meetings they could be saying stuff in Chinese and you don't know what what they're saying um, mm-hmm. so it was it was great having kind of someone working for me in those meetings and she would would be on my team and help um, kind of mediate and uh, yeah she could let me know what what people in the uh, factories was saying and she would always let me know how she felt about about the factories because she has a lot of experience uh visiting different factories and stuff so she uh yeah she was great i definitely recommend trying to um try to hire a, i think sometimes they're called fixers um but yeah there's kind of companies who have have this set up and they you can hire them to uh kind of be your be your right hand man or woman mm-hmm. uh while you're over there and how, how does how do you begin looking for a fixer or someone out there that can help not just translate for you but actually understand that the business the kind of business that you're you're in like how did you how did you find them well i kind of i actually got lucky my uh, my dad and uncle actually have a import business where they import um, construction materials from from China. So she is actually their employee who lives in China full time. Um, so she met me. That's how I how I found her. But um, since working with her, I've seen I, you could you could find them on uh, on Google, Google searches or kind of in um, like Shopify groups or chats. I know they're they're kind of I see people posting um kind of export export help um and they would be based in china that's how i would have gone about it if uh if i didn't already kind of have that in mm, so obviously you would want to interview these people to, to make sure that it's you're choosing the right translator based on your experience like what are some key attributes that you recommend people looking for when they are looking to hire a translator slash fixer to help them when they are in china uh, one thing it would be very beneficial if they knew the the, uh, the the area in particular that you're going to. So the area that um, I went to was Shenzhen and Guangzhou, which um, uh, Sally, who I who I met up with there, she used to live in Shenzhen, so she kind of knew the area. Um, that's makes it super helpful for for getting around um you know there's like taxis subway uh buses so many different methods of transportation a lot of time the factories will come and pick you up from your hotel so that makes it that makes it easier um but that's definitely one of the things if you have if they're 
kind of from or familiar with the general area that you're going to would really help. Um, also, I know uh, Sally, who I who I worked with, is a great negotiator. Like I said, she comes from the uh, from the con- construction material trades, so she had a ton of knowledge with negotiations. And actually, when we were over there, I had pr- I, for the first time I had paid for a uh, a mold, like a new uh, f- uh, foam case tooling to be made. And one of the factories that we were visiting, they kept delaying it, installing it, and it still wasn't still wasn't completed by the time that they had promised. So um, she had actually it it took two hours, and she was kind of arguing with them and negotiating with them, and she actually ended up getting my money back that I paid for that for that tooling that wasn't completed yet. So that was huge to get back, you know, a, f- a few thousand dollars. Um, on something that that wasn't made as by the time that they promised it had been. Mm, certainly sounds like uh, worth the investment to get a really great translator. Now, when you go to these factories or go to these meetings at the trade show, trade shows, uh, what's your, what's your goal? Like, what are the top like you know two to three things that you want to accomplish on a on a given day at a factory or in a day full of meetings? Um, so if it's your if it's your first time meeting with the factory, um, you definitely just kind of want to have those normal conversations, get to know each other, kind of get a feel for the people, the people who are in charge of the factory that you're meeting with. After all, you're going to be, you know, emailing them um, back and forth every day um, while your product is getting is getting manufactured and you want to make sure that they that you get the feeling that they're there to help you out and that they're a good fit. Um, that's kind of just, um, like person personally wise, um, like on a, on a personal level. Um, after that, you have to kind of look at, you go to their showroom and you see what other products they're capable of manufacturing. You want to see the quality of the products that they're, that they're making. Um, if you can try and get some information from them in regards to what other what other brands or what other companies potentially your competitors if they're if they're making if they're manufacturing um, similar products for other yeah like I said competitors that could be that could be great if you know that that com- that competitor of yours um, or just kind of brand in in a similar space if you may if you know that they are kind of a bigger name than you are at the time and if they've chosen to work with this factory then it it you know can can be uh like kind of a kind of a a green light potentially um so yeah definitely testing the the products that they that they have kind of there on their showroom floor and that they are able to make the the products that you want them to make uh, at a a good price point. There, are, so for phone cases, there are the initial tooling costs, which are uh, very expensive, and then uh, there's the the individual per per unit cost of all the cases coming out of there. So, um, yeah, definitely get a, get a get a price quote. Make sure that they're uh, quoting on all the all the correct things make sure it's very you have laid out to them very clear exactly what you want quoted on because um one time in the past i guess the the uh the manufacturer that i was meeting with they we had discussed one uh way of 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 making a case and we didn't end up going with that or i didn't think we ended up going with that but that's what they ended up quoting on and it ended up being the experience the tooling was like four times as expensive as it should have been um, just from a simple communication error, you know? So you really have to make sure that you have everything um, very clear laid out as to what you're getting, what you're getting quoted on. Hmm. So you had the attention of Apple and now you have actually sold into a number of physical retail stores. Can you tell us which ones you've, you sold your cases or have sold your cases? 
Uh, yeah, so there, um, there's Holt Renfrew, which is kind of a, uh, a luxury retailer in Canada. Um, Nordstrom sold them, Free People, Urban Outfitters, Indigo are kind of some of the, uh, the popular names. And how did this happen? Like how, when did this, when was the timeline for you getting into all of these retailers? So it was funny, actually, when I had kind of started making the cases, I kind of dreamt that the, that the goal would be to get into Holt Renfrew, you know, Canada's luxury, uh, luxury retailer. Mm-hmm. And that was actually one of the first retailers that, uh, that picked up the, the initial, um, metal studded cases. And it's funny how it happened. It was kind of, being in the right place at the right time. Um, my friend Tony Pham was sitting front row at a Toronto Fashion Week event and he was sitting beside the vice president of Holt Renfrew and he had one of my one of my cases on. So she said, Oh my God, what is that? Tell me tell me all about this. I need to know. So he said that it's a uh, local Toronto designer and uh, she said, Okay, set up a meeting. So I was uh, had a meeting set up the following week in the uh, the vice president of Holt Renfrew's office, and all the buyers were there. And I brought some handmade samples, laid them out on the table, and they ended up placing an order right there for two hundred and something units. So that was my my biggest order at the time from uh, from you know a, a huge. Uh, retailer Holt Renfrew, which was a which was a dream to get in. So it was kind of surreal that they were actually one of the first uh, retailers that ended up picking up the uh, felony case phone cases. Yeah, definitely one of the great benefits of having a super visible product like a like a phone case that that stands out. And what about the other retailers? How did that? How did those uh, pan out? So yeah, they're kind of all um, different different stories. I, I kind of wrote out a list of uh, retailers that I thought would be a great fit that I fit for the brand. And I thought that the cases would sell really well in, and I kind of just would go on LinkedIn search, um, you know, uh, urban outfitters buyer and kind of find their profile on LinkedIn, try and connect with them or send them a message. Um, that was how I would, that was kind of my initial step and see if they would reply. Then I would just send, uh, I would just send them everything they needed in that first message. So photos of the cases, um, line sheet with kind of the collection photos along with retail and wholesale pricing. And I, I just made sure I gave them all the information that they needed right then to, to make the decision. Um, I was worried that maybe if I just said, Hey, I have this phone case company. I thought you might be interested, but didn't include photos or whatever. Um, they might just pass that by. Um, so if, Sometimes they buyers would reply and say yes and send over samples. Or if I didn't hear back from from the buyer that I had reached out to, um, I would just kind of look up where their head office is and I would put a little sample pack together and um, put put you know attention accessories buyers or if if I could if I could find their name on LinkedIn, I would definitely include their name on the uh, on the package. And kind of make it a little bit more personal like that. But if not, yeah, I was just sending set, sending boxes of cases to, uh, to you know, head offices. And that's actually how Urban Outfitters uh, started buying. I had reached out to them on LinkedIn or email uh, to start. I didn't hear anything back. So I just sent them samples. And then I, a few days after the samples were delivered, um, the, the correct buyer from Urban Outfitters hit me back and... Uh, yeah, that's kind of how that how that one started. So, yeah, it's kind of all different uh, all different ways and tactics of kind of uh, getting getting the products into the uh, like in the eyes of their uh, the buyers. Yeah, I, mean, I like how you you take this essentially offline and not just message and email these people out, but actually try to send them the product to their offices. Uh, but I still I bet they still get bombarded all the time, right? Whether it be through regular mail or through email or through LinkedIn messages. Like what what do you think of what do you think it was about you or your approach that helped you stand out to get the attention of these buyers? Yeah, definitely. They're hundred percent getting uh getting emails and samples sent to them all the time. Um at the end of the day I think it's just about having a uh 
catchy product that fits with the assortment and the 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 aesthetic of the store uh and yeah something that kind of just catches the eyes of the buyers that they feel uh synergy with they feel will be a good fit with their store i think at the end of the day that's that's what it come comes down to you have to really kind of carefully pick out which which retailers you think your products will will work with and um kind of focus on them uh you know if 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 it works with others that's great but at the end of the day it's it's the it's the buyer's decision and they really have to feel like it's going to do well sell well in their mm-hmm. stores yeah i often hear from entrepreneurs that sell into these big box retailers is that getting that initial purchase order is that is the easy part the hard part is actually working with them right falling into their process and making sure you're buy by their process so what's it been like working with so many different retailers are they all the same or are they all different like what's your experience been like yeah that's been a huge learning curve every retailer has you know uh specific routing guides to how they want the product received uh uh, whether it be in their in their warehouses or if you ship it direct to their to their stores that are going to sell it a lot of the big box retailers will have you know warehouses uh like one central warehouse or a few warehouses throughout the states or canada where you will ship um, all of the products too, and you have to make sure they're all the, the proper stickers are on them, the barcodes, um, everything. Some, some retailers have uh, specific requests. Like they want, they want like theft pre- prevention stickers put on. So that is all the brand's, uh, job to do prior to us shipping it to their, to their warehouse. Who handles all of that? Is that you or do you outsource all of these kind of nuances between all the different uh, retailers? So I, I handle that. I personally still handle that to this day, actually, just because I don't want to jeopardize uh, a big retailer mm-hmm. uh, re- receiving a shipment uh, and something's done incorrect. So, yeah, I still handle that for all of our, uh, our website uh, online sales that's all through a uh, through a fulfillment company but yeah i do all of the retail retail orders still got it um and what kind of preparation did you have to to do or did you even have the time to prepare for that initial purchase order to make sure that you lined up with all the things that they wanted yeah it's a lot of reading you'll get a uh, a, a pdf document um the first the first kind of big uh really confusing one that i got was nordstrom in the states um so i think their their routing guide is like a hundred page pdf it goes into specifics all the way down to what boxes to use what cardboard boxes to use to ship and what tape you actually use on the box, it has to be a, like only specific types of tape, only specific types of, of packaging material inside. Like you can't use peanuts, um, like packaging filler peanuts. So you really have to read through these, these documents and kind of make notes and study it. And, uh, there's usually, there's, there's always someone in the, uh, at the receiving warehouse. If you have questions, if it's your first time, um, hopefully they're they're helpful i know i've reached out and uh usually get someone there who's uh who will help me out but yeah that first shipment uh that that i did to nordstrom uh, so much stuff went wrong they were held up in customs because they didn't have country of origin stickers on the packaging so customs didn't release them it actually all ended up getting returned to us so i had to get um, you know, made in China, stickers made, and then and then re-sticker all of the all of the packages, uh, and then reship them. And um, yeah, thankfully, eventually they receive them. But that uh, comes comes with a price. There are always chargebacks if if you do something incorrectly. They'll the retailers will just take uh, take money off the the amount owed to you for the mm-hmm. products. 
So you've sold, you know, in store at these retailers. You sell through your own website at felonycase.com. You mentioned to me that you sold an Etsy to start with, and you mentioned offline that you sold or are selling through Spring, and then you're also setting up your shop on Amazon. What if you look back on all of this, and if you could give advice to someone out there that's just starting? Which of these avenues would you recommend people focus on first? Like, is there a specific kind of best, or in your experience, best order of operations to launch in all of these different marketplaces? I definitely focus on your own website first. Uh, make sure all of your, you know, product images and copy and everything is is up to snuff for your own website first. That way, when you are um, kind of uh, ex- expanding into whether it be other um, online points of sale like Amazon or Etsy or into retailers, then you already have all the information, all the photos uh, of your products and all the all the copy for the website. Um, and you can just send that. You, you can pretty much just copy and paste that from your you know Shopify store onto Etsy, list the products there onto Amazon, list the products there with the same copy, and then even sometimes retailers, uh, it'll it'll be a perk to a retailer if they don't have to um, do their own product photography. A lot of them do want to do their own because they have kind of their own aesthetic, but um, I always, when I, whenever we get a new retailer, I always let them know ahead of time that I have all the um, product photography on plain white and I have all, you know, social media posts that they can use to share to promote the brand. Um, and yeah, I've, I've found that that kind of works as a, as an upsell, uh, and retailers will appreciate that if you could send them the, the product photography so they can use the same photos on their website and they don't have to worry about, um, having a photographer take more, more pictures. Mm, so you you recommend focusing your website first, not necessarily because it might be the greatest volume of traffic or sales, but because you can reuse a lot of that work in all the other marketplaces. Yeah, definitely, and and yeah, for us, it is um, it 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 has been like uh, our own website, and then uh, retailers have been the two biggest uh, you know sources of traffic and uh, and sales. Um, I, I find if if sometimes people might come across your your um, your product on say an Etsy or or an Amazon, and from there from there they will do a Google search and they'll want to find your your website directly um, just to kind of validate the brand brand make sure it looks uh, legit. Um, they they'll probably want to check out your you know social media Instagram Facebook um, see what you're doing there as well. So yeah, I kind of think all those um, touch points work hand in hand and work really well together to uh, to kind of give your brand that full 360 uh, view on online from people who who you know new people who find you come across your brand. Yeah, especially if you're building a brand, you can no longer just rely on the one site that the customer might have landed on, that they discovered you on, whether it be on Amazon or Etsy, they're going to seek you out, right? They're going to seek you out by Googling you. They're going to look for your socials. They'll look for your actual, your own website. So that's that's a very important point. When you are building a brand, you want to make sure all the messaging is out there and available for people to take a look at. Uh, now, a lot of success too, or you've had a lot of success at least with uh, collaborating with a lot of celebrities. Um, talk to us about that. What kind of celebrities have you worked with and how did those uh, come about? Yeah, so uh, that's that's been kind of cool. Um, we worked with The Weeknd on a uh, iPhone case for his XO clothing line. So that was a collaboration case. I worked with his uh, creative director and uh, we, we came up with some case designs and yeah they actually released those on their website as part of a collection so that was with the weekend um there have been a there have been a few other phone cases with um with some other celebrities um travis scott we did samples of phone cases for him uh theophilus london uh those ones didn't end up making it to uh for sale but it's still a cool uh, learning curve. Um, sometimes it's hard to work with these celebrities. You know, their their team have so much other more important stuff going on that um, 
yeah, stuff might get forgotten about or whatever. But that was cool working with the weekend for that for sure. And then um, even kind of uh, working with celebrities as influencers and sending them our case our cases. Um, so Haley Baldwin has been spotted with our with our phone cases. Uh, back in the day, actually, one of the first big ones was uh, the DJ Dead Mouse, um, mm-hmm. and his his one of his marketing people saw the case and actually bought it online. So I had no idea. And then he ended up posting a picture on Instagram with it. So that was super cool. Nice. So you're not just getting them or you have done this in the past too, but you're going beyond just working with them as influencers. You're collaborating with, with others too. Now in the cases that it has worked out and you've sold these products, do you find that the kind of customers, the kind of attention that you get when collaborating with these celebrities will often create the or will often bring in repeat purchases from these customers or are they usually you know there to buy and support their celebrity and kind of you know go off after that yeah it's hard to say you know i think uh especially with uh with the weekend one because it, it all the sales were done um through his website and at his um shows so kind of with that it was only our brand name you know inside the case and on mm-hmm. the on the packaging so it's not like it was it was his brand name on the on the outside of the case um so in in instances like that i think they're really buying it to support their you know favorite favorite musician but hey if if uh, some of them notice the case brand and then become fans of the case um because of that then yeah that's super cool too yeah so that's one thing that i've seen where you can certainly explode your sales from collaborating with a celebrity, but a lot of times it's at a detriment of not necessarily, uh, I guess, hiding your brand, but you are sometimes white labeling, I guess, your product and, and their brand is going to be more prominent in that case. So that's certainly something to to weigh the pros and cons with versus like just working with a celebrity as an influencer and getting them your kind of flagship products and getting those in front of their audiences. Um, now, I want to talk about your your the team that you have working behind this. You mentioned that it's pretty much just you, and then you've also hired some freelancers. Talk to us about that. Who, what kind of freelancers have you hired to help out? Yes, yeah, so um, I I hire you know kind of creative people, um, photographers and graphic designers, three um, D designers too for some of the more geometric. Uh, designs that we do um so yeah a lot of the freelancers i work with are more creative leaning uh where you know i work with a few uh local local photographers around toronto who who do lots of shoots for us and that's great content for you know social media instagram um and at we use it on ads and then as well as on our website and yeah i'll work with uh, a lot of graphic designers all kind of conceptualize new case designs and um kind of get them to uh put their put their spin on it and uh yeah make something out of it um so that's kind of really how i've how i've been working um up until now uh kept it super lean i'm i'm the only uh staff or employee i i I did mention that i have the uh fulfillment company so that took a lot of weight off my shoulders and freed up a lot of my time when they came in and started doing a lot of the, the online order fulfilling. Um, and then I also have people come into the office, uh, when I, when we're super busy with, uh, with big, uh, retail orders to help, help, help package those and get those all ready for shipment. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, kind of who, who I've been working with now. Um, I am, kind of in the process of uh, looking to hire a more full-time creative person to take that in-house and, uh, you know, be a creative lead to kind of put their vision in the photo shoots and uh, new case designs and overall kind of branding for the, for felony case. Um, I'm kind of starting out that, uh, that hiring process now. Nice. Now, what about uh, applications? What kind of apps or services or tools do you use to help run the business? Um, so I kind of started on uh, on Shopify a few months ago, and one of the one of the main 
reasons why I wanted to make the switch was actually from listening to Shopify Masters podcast and, um, uh, you know, hearing hearing people explain the different apps that they use. Previously, I was on WooCommerce and all that. I think there's an app marketplace there, but it is um, just very confusing and I didn't end up using any apps there. Um, so Shopify, since making that switch, it's been, it's been great. One of my favorite apps is um, is is consistent cart. So it's the uh, the cart abandonment. Um, they'll they'll follow up with an email, and uh, it's great. They have a they have a tracker on top to show what the value of uh, of abandoned carts that they've recovered for you. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, my favorite because I can see that I can see that number there and see that it's. Uh, far more than than paying off each month uh that's been great cool any other apps that you recommend other than that i I keep it pretty pretty basic um pixel pop i use for kind of um a kind of capture email addresses and a little bit of an upsell with a uh with like a uh 10 percent off coupon that's been great. And I also use that same um, Pixel Pop for um, for when people people in Canada visit our felonycase.com website. It um, pops up to them saying, would you like to shop in Canadian dollars? And uh, it sends them over to the felonycase.ca website. Um, that's another great one. You know, I, I kind of, with, with apps, um, it's great that they work like this. You just kind of set them and forget them uh so a lot of the time i'm not actually thinking of mm-hmm. of of the apps but they're always there working for you and it's great yeah yeah one thing i noticed on your site was that you've uh, implemented the facebook messenger uh i guess uh, live chat features just message us in your bottom right hand corner is that something new that you've added like, what's your experience been like with uh, adding facebook messenger into your into your i guess customer support yeah, actually, that's uh, one that I kind of just added a couple weeks ago. Um, that I've been I've been testing it out, and and it's great. Yeah, being being right there when the customer has a question, um, being able to answer it right away from them, and then it's kind of cool seeing that order with their name come through a few minutes after you answer that question. So I was like, okay, yeah, this is this is definitely definitely worth it. You know. Um, being right there and having that immediate customer support is is great. Um, that's a new one that we've been testing out. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's been it's been cool so far. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time, Andrew. Felonycase.com is the website. What's next? What's next for Felony Case? Where do you want to take the brand next? Well, right now we're uh, we're kind of getting neck deep into iPhone eight development. So uh, yeah, definitely have some exciting new designs coming out for that when it's uh, released later this year. Awesome! Thank you so much, Andrew. Yes, thank you, Felix. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. Just because you give back doesn't make your business unique anymore. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com blog.